All right, everybody. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I recorded this episode in a garage, and it was a nice garage. I really enjoyed the garage as the garage itself, but it was Rick's garage. Rick is a uh, longtime friend of my dad and very talented musician. Um, he was kind enough to host me, and we sat down and had a two-ish hour conversation about music and softwares and life experience and things of the like. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to former podcast guest and um, friend of the show. His name is Arthur Hatton, and he donated this bit of music right here. And uh, it's going to be my new intro outro shenanigan. Uh, it's good to finally have one of those. But uh, the song is called 14 Hours, and you can find it wherever he displays his uh, music on the interwebs. I'll have a link to it in the episode description. Uh, otherwise, uh, have a listen, enjoy, thank you very much, and uh, I'll sign off at the end of the episode with the KAAMP shenanigans. Um, KMOX at night? Yep, KMOX, you, Jim White. What'd, you, what'd they play? He's talk show, okay. talk radio. And uh, he would come on about about midnight our time and then he'd be on till three or four o'clock in the morning and people called in and just talked about whatever they wanted to talk about how long did that show run i don't know i listened to it when i was in high school it was on for through college and everything it, it was on for years and years but jim white came ox and then i listened to wwl see came ox was a clear station you know fixed thousand watt station and then at night, they wouldn't during the day, but at night. And then WSM, you get at night, and not a nice one. And then WWL was a truck driver station out in New Orleans, and uh, you could get it at night. And uh, Charlie Douglas was the DJ, and they told all about the, the weather. And I mean, you know, it was before you had phones and all that stuff you know a truck driver driving at night listening to that radio yeah and they'd say well you know you guys coming down i-95 down through virginia you know looks like you got some snow going on there well, this is important stuff for them right know. yeah like every and hour all the hour yeah the charlie douglas road gang was the name of the show <laughs> i wasn't a truck driver but i entertaining enough to listen it was to entertaining enough to listen to that and oh, then good they would tell all about I used to play all the old country stuff and the truck driving songs and the, you know Dave Dudley and all the people like that, you know. So I, I end up listening to a lot of the college radio station in Knoxville. It, do, it doesn't go very far right now. They're planning yeah. to upgrade it this year, but uh, that, that's some of the best variety programming you're going to get in yeah. Knoxville. I, I enjoy it a lot. Benny Smith does a really good job making that station work. So I very much uh, that that one gets played in my car most of the time. And if I'm if I'm out of range, then I'm probably listening to something from my phone. Well, it's, it's probably it's probably it, you know back then when I'm talking about when I was a kid, you didn't have that much, and uh, you just you know you got a few stations here, and now you know it's like I just built an antenna and put up out here. Yeah. 
that I get 45 channels of TV <laughs> on my home built antenna. Now the, the $200 antenna sitting next to it, I only get 36 channels. <laughs> but I get 45 channels on that home built antenna. Plus all the Netflix and streaming channels that I get free. The problem is trying to figure out what to watch. Always. The market is so diluted. <laughs> it's always the problem. And uh, you know, back when I grew up, we got two channels. We got Channel 10, CBS, and Channel 6 was NBC. Then if somebody go out and turn the antenna, you could get Channel 13 out of Asheville, WLOS. Made it over the mountains? Yep. Wow. It, it was a uh, ABC channel. Okay. So if you, and then finally Channel 2, of course, PBS. But those three networks, that was it. Yeah. Oh, they were the only ones that had the infrastructure. And, and, but somebody had to go out and turn the antenna to get the third one. You couldn't get all three at the same time. You could get two at the same time or one. So how did you decide who it was that went to go turn the antenna? Did you rock, paper, scissors? Whoever or? wanted to watch the program <laughs> most had to go outside. It took two people. See, you oh, had to have one inside, one outside and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 go back the other way. <laughs> so it was, it was a, a, a co-op effort. Yeah. Yeah. It took two people to, to do that. And then at night, about midnight or maybe one o'clock, then uh, they showed these uh, Blue Angels or somebody flying and played the national anthem and TV went off. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't have no TV until about five or six o'clock next morning when Cass Walker came on TV. Right. <laughs> Kaz Walker, what a, what a guy to start the day with, Kaz Walker. <laughs> uh, so, okay. I haven't had you introduce yourself yet, so will you introduce yourself, please? I'm Rick Campbell. I'm from Sneedville, Tennessee. I'm, this is home, and uh, I was gone for about 30, 32 years or something like that, out working, making a living, but I came back to Sneedville in 2015 and uh, bought my great-grandfather's place and and I've been here ever since. So what were you doing on the road? I was working in the mining industry, working with uh, mainly the processing of, uh, of mineral processing and, and water treatment in the, in the mines, environmental type stuff. But that's, that's not really why we're here to talk, though. Uh, you, from what I hear, you're a really talented musician. My dad has a very high opinion of you and your skills. Well, so that's, that's why I came to bend your ear a little bit. I, I have worked hard to be able to play, you know, fairly well. Not as good as some. I chose early on not to make music a career because when I went to Nashville and, and played on some records and things, I saw how some of the people that were my idols that I thought were just, uh, I mean, they were the best musicians in the world. And I was on in the recording studio with them and their lifestyle didn't, didn't suit me too well. <laughs> and, and, and I just decided that, you know, I don't want to do this for a living. Mm. But uh, they were satisfied with it. They were great musicians, but uh, it's a hard way to make a living. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, you don't have a lot of benefits and things like that, you know, and, and I just chose not to do it. But I've been lucky that I was in the right place at the right time, a lot of times that I got to play some professional music. 
and uh, with people like Bill Monroe and Del McCurry and Sneebles, Jimmy Martin, and people like that, that I got to play out professionally, but I still had a, a job all the time. That's, so I've been real, real fortunate I've got to do that. It's good to have both of those. Yeah. One, yeah, to, one to take care of the day-to-day -day and then one for what you feel you, you would like to be doing otherwise. But first first trip out on the road, you know, some people sometimes, you know, they wouldn't eat. And maybe we'd stop and they'd buy a pack of crackers or something. And I thought, well, <laughs> these people don't eat much. And then you'd go play the show and get paid and then they'd eat good. So it didn't take long to figure out what was going on there. And I had a job and I had money in my pocket, but I just would go along and do what they did because I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to eat a lot in front of them and things. But they loved music enough to to do it that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess that's okay. But but I was lucky. I got to play a lot. And, and another thing, I got to play a lot. Sometimes people out in Nashville or somewhere would call and say, could you come down and, and do a show this weekend or something? And I lived in Knoxville, you know, and it wasn't that I was, that they had to go all the way outside of Nashville to find somebody to play. Yeah. There was people, you know, falling over top of one another in Nashville that could play circles around me. But they knew I was good enough that if they said, I'm going to be out and I've got this guy going to fill in for me, they knew that I could play good enough that the boss would be okay. All right. But at the same time, I was not a threat to them. They knew that when I played and got done the show, I was very content in going back home. Right. <laughs> but if they took a chance on one of these guys that was out of work and he's driving a cab or waiting tables or something, and they got him to fill in for them, and maybe the boss said, I'm like, I can better than do the other guy. Right. Then they jeopardize their job. Yeah, they're a little hungrier. Yeah, so, so they, they was they knew I was no threat, and they was happy for having me come down, and, and they'd say, yeah, he did okay, we we got through just fine, and and he went back home and all that, so then somebody else would call, you know, right? can you get that guy to come fill in for me, you know? So that is, would, would you label yourself a session musician, or? Uh, or? I have been, uh, I, but not a full-time session musician, I mean, you've got the... Nashville, you got the A team, and you've always had the A team, but the the members kind of change as time goes on. But, right. But they were the guys that that got first. They call them first call yeah. musicians, and and uh, you know like steel guitar. Buddy Emmons was first call guy, and uh, so they would go and play, and then I did sessions mostly with people that I knew that were going to Nashville to record and they just got me to go with them and and then sometimes independent sessions in Nashville you know people that didn't couldn't afford to pay the A team and stuff I'd get lucky every now and then and I'd know somebody and they'd call and say could you come do a session and I worked out of Nashville area I worked for the zinc mines up in Clarksville for a couple of years and so I was in Nashville all the time I got a little work because of that, or sometimes some of my buddies that were were really pro session guys were booked up, and they get a session and they say, "Hey, I, this guy's wanting somebody. And I can't do it. Would you be interested in doing yeah. it?" 
Okay. So it sounds like you were able to build a pretty organic network just doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. As much as I wanted to. I right. mean, I've, I've been just the luckiest guy in the world, you know, and that, to be able to do that. But I always tried to, I always tried to do what they wanted me to do. You know, I was working for them. Right. And and my policy in the studio has, has not changed over the years. And people call sometimes and say, could you do a session? And the first thing I asked them was, oh, where are you going to do it at? Because if they're going to do it in Marstown, that's one thing. If they're <laughs> going to do it in Atlanta, that's yeah. something different. Right. You know, because of travel involved and, and maybe have to stay all night and everything, you know. So before we get talking about money, they, I find out where it's going to be. Well, we're we going to do it in Knoxville. Okay. Well, how much would, well, you know, back in the 90s, I said, well, I'll get $30 a song. And here's, here's the way I do it. I'll do and try every way I know to play the way you want me to play and, and do it like you want me to do and satisfy you. And if I'm not able to, you don't owe me anything. You just say, this is not working. And, and I'm not going to get mad because there's people that I know are great, wonderful musicians that I wouldn't want on one of my records because I don't particularly care for the way they play. Right. But not to say they're not good, it just don't fit what I think I want. Yeah. So I'd say, well, you know, it, and if it's not working, if I'm not able to satisfy, just say, look, you know, it, this is not working and you don't owe me anything and I'll just go home. <laughs> right, because you can just go home. <laughs> right. But if you, you, you can't use what I did. If you use it, it costs you $30 a song. I don't care how bad it is. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. I really do. I, I, never, I never had anybody run me off, you know. And uh, but I've, been, I've been lucky. I've, I've never played on anything big or anything like that, you know. And uh, I'll, I'll leave that to the pros. <laughs> well, what all do you play? Well... I play most of the string instruments and, uh, you know, the guitars and fiddles and steel guitar and mandolins and banjos and bass and a little bit of dobro, just uh, enough to, to do if I have to do something. <laughs> and uh, I, on my recording stuff I do at home, I use uh, computer drum machines and, and MIDI things and keyboard. I can play just enough to kind of... I can understand how to do it sometimes, and I, but I can't do it, if that makes any sense. I, I know what it takes to make it work, but, but I don't have the dexterity right. now to, to do it myself, but I can program it. Yeah. And I know what it, I know what it needs to be. So, you know, it takes me 30 minutes to do what a, a good keyboard player could do first take in, in <laughs> 50 seconds you know yeah but it takes me 50 minutes because i have to do it one note at a time and i edit it and all that stuff but it works well that's the important part right it works yeah yeah uh you know that's not a short list of instruments you just told me right like, that's not a short list at all well <laughs> no but <laughs> but you got to realize most people that that can play pretty good can play a, a lot multiple of stuff. instruments and uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I, most people start out playing a guitar and then they move on and maybe they're known to be a fiddle player or, or a 
steel guitar player or something, but I guarantee you about 99 times out of 100, if you stuck a guitar in your hand and say, play some rhythm, they know how to do it. They can do it. <clears throat> and, and once you learn, once you learn one instrument, it's not not too hard to go to a different one because the basics are there, the timing and the chord progressions and, and things that you have to know. And it's like, you know, if you know how to fly airplanes, and I know how to do that too, and I've been a flight instructor and, and all that, but if you know how to fly airplanes, learning to fly helicopters is not a big deal because you already know all the stuff about navigation right. and all that. All you have to do is just learn to fly the helicopter, the mechanics <laughs> Right, simple. Yeah. But there's a lot of carryover. That's, yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, I might have to use that in the future, just learn to fly the helicopter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so what put you on this musical path? What was what was growing up like? Did you have any serious influences growing up? Uh, no. Or, or did you just pick it up one day? Dad came home with a guitar he got somewhere, probably an auction sale or something, and it had a a little pamphlet with it that showed some chord charts and stuff, and he gave it to Mom and told Mom to teach me how to play it. Now, Mom didn't know how to play it either. So <laughs> that a good was like, plan. <laughs> that's like the blind leading the blind, but I got kind of interested in it. And I sat down and, and learned a few chords. And then after I got to play that a little bit, I found out that a banjo tuned almost the same as the bottom four strings of a guitar, with, with the exception of one. And then a banjo had a fifth string on it. Well, I figured out how that tuned, and I tuned my guitar, the bottom four strings, like a banjo and got me some finger picks and I learned to play banjo on that guitar. So when I finally got a banjo, I pretty much knew how to play it except for the fifth string Yeah. that you don't really know it anyway. And uh, so I kind of had a head start on the banjo and then <laughs> the other things just, just came along and uh, I got a, I was playing banjo here. We had a local band, it was myself and Jim Shaw on the guitar, and Rex Green on the bass, and D. Tony Hurd on the mandolin, and then Luke Hurd played guitar in, in the band, and we played. And uh, then I got to play fiddle some, and I was playing a little bit of fiddle, just not much, and not too much, and a band called the New Carter Family out of Tazewell came up here to do a show and uh, their bus broke down. And, <laughs> and we, where did it break down? <laughs> I, I don't know it completely broke down. It, it had problems when they got here. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I, you didn't get to see many bands come into Sneeble, you know. Right. So I was all over that. I was over to high school seeing what they was all about. And I had a toolbox in my car because my car was bad to break down too. <laughs> and I carried tools with me. And uh, so I let them take my toolbox back on their bus with them to Tazewell in case they broke down en route. So they had my tools, so I had to go down there and get my tools. Right. 
and they knew and I, I think maybe the band our local band might have played that night too and I played banjo and so I went back down there and and Larry Carter was the banjo player and uh, he said, boy, I'd like to have you play with us. But he said, I play the banjo. <laughs> he said, why don't you play fiddle? I said, well, I don't really know how. He said, well, you can learn like the rest of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of got a fiddle playing job without really knowing how to play fiddle. He talked you right into it, huh? Yeah. And he became, uh, he became one of my closest friends. We were, we were like brothers. We, we played all over the country together. I mean, we everywhere. I mean, we was in Oklahoma and, and up north and everywhere together playing the different bands through the years. And he passed away about two years ago and a really, really good friend. But I learned to play enough with, with playing with, with them and then just other bands around here and there and yonder and uh, moved in my job. I moved to Kentucky and I got to play in the Renfro Valley. I played up there about three years every Saturday night at the Renfro Valley Barn Dance in, in uh, Mount Vernon, Kentucky, the Renfro Valley. And uh, played fiddle up there with some real, real good musicians. And then every now and then somebody'd call them, you know, we'd fill in here, fill in there. And then I got to know people out. You know, I played a lot in North Carolina with, with bands over there. And, uh, and then I got to know Dale McCurry, and Dale lived in Pennsylvania still at the time. He's in Nashville now. But he called me and said, uh, would you want to go to uh, Oklahoma with me this weekend? I'd need a fiddle player. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he had to twist your arm, huh? It didn't, didn't take long, no. I, I worshipped his music, you know, and Bill Monroe's music and all that, and that was very similar. And he said, where'd be a good place to meet? And I said, Ramada Inn, Marstown, right, right there at, uh, on 81. Yeah. And uh, X date, I guess it is. That's what it is, yeah. And, uh, Passed by it today. Yeah. I said, uh, <laughs> just meet me there. And so we did, and... We went to Oklahoma. We didn't rehearse, did nothing. Got up there, we tuned and got on stage, and which I knew his stuff, I, and he knew I knew his stuff. Right. And uh, he'd say, I don't know if Rick kicks this off or not. And I said, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we played and we got done, we started home and he said, uh, you know, I'm really happy the way this went this weekend. He said, well, why don't you just stay with us? I said, well, okay. I said, but now <laughs> I've got a job, you know. He said, yeah, I know. But I worked it out that I'd squeeze a week's worth of work into four days because we'd usually leave out on Thursdays, right. Thursday night or Friday morning. And uh, I'd take my briefcase with me and paperwork I had to do and things, and I'd be sitting on the bus working on blueprints and figures and whatever I need to do while we was on the road. And then on Sunday we'd get in, depending on where it was at, I would work my way back home up through West Virginia or wherever I need to be. Yeah. And I did that for a, a year. And then I left in January of that year. We were playing in Nashville at the Spigma convention. 
and uh, that's the Society for Preservation of something of bluegrass, whatever it is. And uh, I quit that night. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't mad or nothing. I just said, Dale, I, you know, things have slowed down now. I'm, it's a good time for me to yeah. quit because it's just too much for me. He said, I, I understand. And he said, well, I've got a few things this winter. He said, if I can't find anybody local, you know, can, up there, he said, will you help me if, uh, get in the bind? I said, well, yeah. <laughs> so we had a couple things in the winter, maybe up there in Virginia or Maryland or somewhere, right. Delaware or somewhere like in Canada sometimes. And uh, did that. And then about April, he called and he said, well, he said, I don't have anybody permanent. He said, I've got to go to Texas this weekend. Could you go to Texas with me? I said, well, yeah. Anything else to do. All you got to do is ask, just right? Meet, yeah, just meet me at the Ramada Inn, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we went to Texas. And then the next weekend he said, well, I've got something up in New Hampshire, you know. Could you fly up to Baltimore? And back then I could get a round-trip ticket for $99. Right. Yeah, okay. Air travel now is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I went on and done that for another year of, of being the fill-in guy because he didn't have anybody else that was was permanent. And I done that for about another year. And then he moved to Nashville, and, and he's, he's had the same band now for probably 20 years. This was 86 and 87 I'm talking about. And uh, a good guy. I mean, he's... On the road with him was it's just like family and you know, you everybody got along, no no fussing and none of that. Made it really comfortable environment for you. Very really, really We're comfortable. Good. We all played the same kind of music and uh, we understood, you know, we understood one another. And uh, we can do that. My phone. Beavis and Butthead. Yes, Beavis and Butthead. For the listeners, that's a Beavis and Butthead ringtone. Uh, I can pause this if you need to. No. All right. I, I couldn't help but laugh at that. Yeah, I was <laughs> Anyway, I did that. And then different people through the years. And then one day... Uh, I was in my office. I had a home office worked out of on a Wednesday morning. And the phone rang. And I said, hello. He said, uh, is this Rick Campbell? And I said, uh, yeah, it is. He said, uh, I need the fiddle player. And I knew who it was but immediately. Right. It was Bill Monroe. And I knew who it was, but I said, who is this? He said, <laughs> <laughs> made him say his own name. He said, this this Bill Monroe. Yeah, I need a fiddle player. And uh, 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 I need you to come down here. And we're going to play at the Bell Cove tonight. And uh, you come down here and play because I, I don't have a fiddle player. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. I said, what time? Uh, about 7 o'clock. So I probably got there about four. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, that was it. I right. mean, to be to to be Bill Monroe's fiddle player is like quarterback in the Super Bowl. Right. So you make sure you're there. Bill Monroe was known to have the best fiddle players. That was just it. in Nashville. If you could play for Bill Monroe, you had a lot of respect because they knew Bill went 
wouldn't have you. Right. And I don't know if he he knew me or from my days with Dale. And sometimes you'd have these finale things that at shows that everybody get on the stage at the same time on the last. And I was out there with him, you know, with Dale and other bands and stuff. I. I never did think he paid any attention to what I was doing. <laughs> and I don't know if he did or not, but he, he said he knew me. But uh, Well, he called. Well, he called, but I think some of his other band members are probably yeah. was behind all that. I'm not sure. But anyway, so I went down there, and uh, I didn't know what was going on because a guy named Jimmy Campbell was the fiddle player. And he'd had a run-in with Bill at the Opry the Saturday night prior to this and Bill had fired him. And it was nasty. It, it was just a, a, a nasty situation. Well, I got there and I sat back there talking to Bill and all of them and I saw Jimmy walk in. And I wanted to talk to Jimmy and find out what had happened, but I knew if Bill saw me talking to him, mm -hmm. That was gonna sour the deal, you know, right? Because Bill's real particular stuff like that, and I knew he was mad at Jimmy. And somebody said, "Bill, there comes Jimmy. He, he's not playing with me. I don't care. I don't care. He's not playing. <laughs> he can come in here with that suit and tie on and that hat, just like I always knew. But he's not getting on the stage with me. I don't care. I've got a fiddle player here." <laughs> well, so I knew, I knew with that attitude, if I, if Bill saw me talking to Jimmy, and realized that we was friends, yeah. You know, I, I just, I didn't know. So, I waited and I saw Jimmy go in the bathroom. So I said, I, excuse me, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I went in the bathroom and I said, Jimmy, what's going on? He said, ah, he said, I, I got into it, Bill. He said, it's, he said, it's a bad situation. He said, it's my fault. He said, I, I messed up. I said some things you shouldn't have said. And he said, it's, it's over for me. And, uh, I said, well, Bill called me, and he said, well, go for it. He said, you know, he said, there won't be no hard feelings between us, you know, and I said, okay. So went out, and we got on stage, and uh, Bill kicked off the show, and we done the Mule Skinner Blues, and Blue Moon of Kentucky, and Uncle Penn, and Little Cabin Home on the Hill, and all the songs that are the most popular Bill Monroe songs that anybody that could play should know how to play. Yeah. And then he started getting into a little bit deeper stuff. Now, that was my music because I had dissected his music <laughs> through you the were, years. You were ready. I was ready. <laughs> and if he introduced a song, I knew who played on the record. I knew the arrangement. I knew everything about that song. It was a piece of cake for me to play. And he got into more obscure stuff, you know, and things that... That I hadn't even thought about maybe 10 years. <laughs> uh, we're good at a number now, at, uh, you know? And I said, oh yeah, let's do that. So you think he put you on the spot like that a little bit? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, but, and I played the best I could play. I mean, I tried hard. And we got done with the show and he was over there talking to his manager. He had a manager named uh, Jim Brazier. And he was talking to Jim, and then Bill came over to me and he said, uh, I'm going home now, and uh, Jim Brazier will tell you how everything works. I said, okay, okay. have a good night. <laughs> and he left, 
and Jim Brazier came over and said, Bill liked your playing and he wants to go ahead and hire you. And I said, well, that's pretty good news, you know. And <laughs> right. He said, now here's the deal. He said, we've got to, this is on Wednesday. He said, we've got to play Friday night. We've got to play the Grand Ole Opry. Friday, this coming Friday? This coming Friday. What, what night did you play that show? Wednesday. Oh, so two days from now you're going to be we, on two days the Opry stage. We'll be playing on the Grand Ole Opry. And we're also playing Ralph Emery's Nashville Now show that was on TNN Network back that time. This is in 94. And he just dropped that no, no, this is 93. I'm sorry. It's 93. And just laid it out there to you like that. Yeah, he said, we'll be playing the Ralph Emery TV show. And then we'll go on over and play the Opry Friday night. Then Saturday night, we're playing the Opry, and it just happens to be the televised portion of the Opry. Just, they put just the, happens. They put the Opry on TV every once in a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just and then, so happens. And then we're leaving out Monday, or I guess it's Monday, going to Washington, D.C. to pay, play Bill Clinton's inauguration. <laughs> I said, well, okay. And, and I'm thinking, televised portion of the Opry, Ralph Emery show, it's on TNN. See, I've got a VCR, and who else has got a VCR? I can get some real footage here, you know, yeah. me on, you know, on the Grand Ole Opry with yeah. Bill Monroe. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta record that. Yeah. And, <laughs> attention to that. And then uh, he said, now here's the deal. He said, we'll want you to move to Nashville because we play a lot of these Opry matinee shows on, during the week. And uh, said, you'll need to move down here. And it was real tempting to say, well, you know, okay, but I can't just move today. It'll take me a couple of weeks to get all, all right. that going, but I'll, I'll just drive back and forth in the meantime. It was tempting to go ahead and do that and get on those TV shows and things to get that video that I wanted so bad and then just say, look, you know, it's not gonna work out for me. Right, yeah. I got moved down got here. what I want, now I gotta. Yeah, but yeah, that was that was uh, deceitful and deceptive. Right. And I thought so much of Bill Monroe, I couldn't, if I'd ever wanted to lie to anybody, I couldn't lie to Bill Monroe. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't do it. And I had to turn it down. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I said, if you need me, I'll do, I'll do these next few shows or something with you. If I could do that, I'd be glad to, but I can't move down here. I just, I can't quit my job. I've got a good job. I can't quit my job and move down here. And uh, he said, well, we're talking to this boy that has been on the road with Ray Price for a long time and, and he's left Ray Price and and I knew, knew him. And I said, well, yeah, he's, he's a good player. And he said, well, if you don't want it, he said, we'll, We'll talk to him. He said, but you've got first shot at it if you want it. Yeah. And I thought, well, having an offer, you know, I played one show with Bill Monroe here, and having an offer to be a full-time bluegrass boy, that's more I ever hoped for. I, I, I'll be satisfied with that. Yeah. And I said, well, you need to call Robert, too. Robert Bowling was the fiddle player. Yeah. Good fiddle player. And uh, so Robert took the job. And I, you know, 
moped around for a few days over it, and I got over it. So, so you didn't go play the Opry and, and the show after that? No. That was the end of it? That was the end of that. Right. Then a year later, phone rang, and it was Bill's office. And they said, Bill wants you to come play fiddle for a while. I said, we know you can't do it full time, but Robert's got to be off for a while. And uh, Bill said to call you, and he, that he, he knows you can play his music and, and all this stuff, and, and he'd like for you to do it. So I said, well, how long is it going to be? They said, well, no, a month or two or something. Well, no. I said, that's perfect for me. <laughs> you know, they said, well, B told me what to go to Hamrick's in Nashville and buy a blue and a, a maroon colored jacket. So they know what they are. So just right. go and tell them you want Bill and Rose <laughs> Bluegrass Boys coat. Right. And get them and be at Nashville at the airport on whatever morning it was, you're going to Montana <laughs> to play the the guy that had the Shutterbug magazine, big photography magazine, has a town he built out there in the Bozeman, Montana. Yeah. It's an old west town, like a movie set yeah. thing. And you're playing Fourth of July <laughs> celebration out there. <laughs> so, okay. So, I was there, you know, and we got on the plane, first class tickets oh man everything <laughs> sat on that airplane flew out to montana and played the show just played i mean we, just, we didn't rehearse nothing then either we just played and we got back that was during the week sometime probably tuesday wednesday or something like that he said now friday night is the opera <laughs> Okay. So he's putting this on you again. Yep. So Friday night's, the, <laughs> Friday night's the Opry, and then we're going to Michigan when we get done, and we got to play up there on Saturday. Get your blue and your maroon coat and be ready. We'll meet out there at Bill's office and, and everything, you know, to leave. So I was single at the time. I had a girlfriend, and I got her to go with me, and... I said, here's the deal. Now, this is before digital cameras. This is 94. I said, I want you to take two cameras. I want you to take two rolls of film for each camera. I said, we're going to eliminate any possibility of failure <laughs> right. of not having a picture of me on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry with that WSM microphone yeah. with Bill Monroe. You got your redundancies built into this plane. Yes. <laughs> so we did. And I got there at the Opry. And man, you talk about excited now. Oh, I bet. I was excited because I told you being, being Bill Monroe's fiddle player, I mean, that, right. was, that was it. And, and I was very naive. I thought because it was so important to me, I thought everybody else there at the Opry would notice, you know, that Bill had a different fiddle players. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and some of these guys that were staff members of the Opry band and stuff like that, I thought, now they're gonna, they're wondering who's this guy, you know, I hadn't seen him here before. 
And after we played our first show, I was walking off stage and I had to walk right by and I'll huddled up there and I said, Hey, how you doing? I said, okay, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't pay any attention to me. But we played that opera show and got the pictures and everything. And I've got them in there on the wall. And uh, so then we was leaving out to, to go to Michigan that night. And my girlfriend was coming back to Knoxville. And she said, uh, we was out there at the, at the office getting on the bus. She said, are you excited? I said, excited about what? She said, about going to Michigan to play with Bill. I was well. After, yeah. after you I do said, the Opry? <laughs> I said, yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to it, you know, and everything, and I'll, I'll enjoy it, and I'll play just as hard as I can play and, and everything. But you got to realize, I just came off the stage of the Grand Ole Opry and had Bill Monroe introduce me as his new fiddle player. Right. Uh, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> like, that, that was it. That was that's, primo. That's it. That, that's, <laughs> that's it. For a fiddle player, you don't, you don't want no more than that. <laughs> and... Uh, so I did that, and then we played all, all over everywhere and, and uh, for a while. And then the last show was a, an opera show, it's like a Saturday night opera show. And uh, Bill said, I said, Bill, I, I really enjoyed this. I said, I, you just don't know what it means to me. I said, I've had so much respect for you and never thought I'd be able to be a member of the Bluegrass Boys and uh, work with you. And you just made this a dream come true. And, and I really appreciate it so much. What, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm done. I said, now, Robert's coming. No, no, he's not coming back. I said, yeah, yeah he's, he's going to. Yeah, he's coming back. No, no, he's not coming back. And, the other band members and everything that knew, you know, he yeah. no, he's not coming back. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, he is. He's going to be back next week and, and everything. And, you know, if something happens, you need me again. No, no, I'm not, no, no. I said, now, wait a minute now, Bill. And so I got one of the other band members and said, let's, let's talk about this. I said, Robert's coming back. Yeah, he's coming back. Well, nobody told me that. I said, well, <laughs> he is. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, we used to have twin fiddles on the show. In fact, through the years, we've had twin fiddles a lot. He said, we could have twin fiddles, and you stay, and you play one, and he play the other one, and we'll have twin fiddles. And I said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to do that, but I've took off work as much as I can, and, you know, it's, it's worked out good, and everything's going to be good for everybody just to do it like we're doing here and go on. <laughs> The, he said, okay. And that was it. That's, that's the last time I talked to Bill. And uh, but it, I wouldn't take nothing, nothing for that. And I learned a lot, learned a lot from Bill. And uh, I remember one night we, we had played the Opry. And he said, Ricky, he, and he called me Ricky for some reason. And, and he said, Ricky, I'd like to have something sweet to eat. Let's go over there at Shoney's. They've got some good stuff over there at Shoney's. I'd say, well, okay. And at that time, I had played three or four shows with him. And we went over to the Shoney's, and he got this strawberry shortcake yeah. thing. And he's sitting there eating that like he hadn't had anything to eat in days. He just shoved <laughs> it in, you know. And 
I said, Bill, I've got a question for you. What's that? I said, well, the Muskinner Blues. I said, you recorded it two or three times. I said, one time with Kenny Baker playing the fiddle, and then you recorded it that time you had Vassar Clements playing the fiddle. And I, you know, I'm not really sure which way you want me to do it. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I thought about it, and he said, and he didn't look up from his short. He said, <laughs> He's still eating the he whole said, time. Uh, I, I don't see no, nothing wrong the way you do it. <laughs> and that was the seal of approval. Right. That that was enough to lift the test. That that's enough to last me a lifetime. So you're good in his eyes, and that's good by you. That was good enough. And no matter from then on, if anybody ever said anything, I just thought. I don't care what you say. <laughs> Bill Monroe said I was all right. Bill, Bill, Monroe, <laughs> Bill Monroe said what I did was okay. And, you know, that's all I need. Yeah. I don't care if right. you like it or not. So is that is that the, like, uh, stamp of approval from it, the hero? It was like, to me. That, that was the the moment? It, it was to me. That's awesome. And because uh, I had another friend that reminded me of something. I had another friend that got the job with Bill. And, and I tried to play Bill's music fundamentally i didn't try to copy the breaks and stuff like other people did note for note but i i knew his style of what he wanted and and same thing jim martin i'll explain that to you to me but uh i i wanted to keep it in his style of what i thought he liked even though i wasn't playing the note for note like somebody else and another friend of mine, fiddle player, and I, I'm not going to mention a lot of names here because I get get in a bind if I do that maybe, but, <laughs> but he's, he's a good fiddle player. You can say allegedly. Well, no, there's, there's no allegedly about this. This, this is all truth. <laughs> but he's a good fiddle player, and he got the job with Bill, and he went to Kenny Baker, which was Bill's probably one of his most famous fiddle players. He's with him about 20 years. And he was, he was super, super player. Good friend, good, all that. And he said, Kenny, I've got the job with Bill, and I want you to show me how to play the uh, Mule Skinner Blues. And he said, I sat at Kenny's house, he said, all day. And he said, I learned it. He said, note for note, exactly like Kenny. And said, and we went out, and we was getting ready to go on stage, and we was kind of warming up and tuning up and things. And, and I said, how about let's run through the Mule Skinner Blues? He said, and I was all excited, you know. And he said, we kicked it off. And he said, I, I kicked the thing off. And Bill said, up, up, up. why are you doing it like that? Said that other guy, all the other fellas done it that way for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, so he was expecting that, that yeah. original take on And uh, he said, so I had to revert back playing it my own way. I said, well, I said, I, I, I circled navigate all that you know i just played my own way to start with and uh, but anyway i said jimmy martin bill monroe's playing was uh he wanted a real long bow where you pull long smooth notes and a lot of tone and, and things and then jimmy martin went for jimmy jimmy's music was a little different than bill's and he wanted what I call blood and guts fiddling. He wanted you to attack. Really solid. You know, <laughs> he wanted you really uh, with a tight bow and really pull power. Hmm. 
and volume and everything. It, the, the, not not the real smooth stuff. Uh, Kenny, uh, Bill's is more like violin music and stuff. But Jimmy wanted that to fit his style of music. He wanted that and a lot of double stops. Now I say double stops. That's when you play two strings at once. It's okay. called a double stop. He wanted a lot of that, and, and Bill liked a lot of single notes and stuff. But uh, and I knew that, and I played what Jimmy, what I thought Jimmy wanted, and I played with him his last couple of years out on the road. We only worked, he worked like 12, 13 shows a year is all he did, but never had any complaints. I mean, he he never questioned anything I did, he, you know, and I asked him a few times, you know, is there a certain way you want me to play? He said, you play any way you want to as long as you play my style of music. Right. He said, don't try to copy these breaks and stuff. He said, play it your way, but keep it in my style. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's what I've been doing with Bill Monroe and other people, you know, and that's worked. So now Jimmy's giving me the civil approval on my yeah. my methodology here. So, so you got approved twice. It should be good. Yeah, right? so I, I, <laughs> I must be doing something okay, you know. And uh, so I did that. And, we played a lot of good music. I've just had a lot of fun playing playing music. Met a lot of people, good people. So what is it about bluegrass that has made you play it about your whole life? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, did you grow up with it all? I mean, you grew up here, right? Yep. So it was around. Uh, and you couldn't really escape it, but how, well, how it, prevalent it, no, was it? it? No, it wasn't around here. No. Every once in a while, Cass Walker would come to Sneedville, and he'd have people like Larry Mathis or Bud Brewster or people, Where Danny play? Bailey. Where would he play? The old high uh, school? No, they'd play on the courthouse porch. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then you'd have Homer Harris would come now, it wasn't Bluegrass. Homer Harris, you don't remember him, your daddy does, but Homer Harris had a horse named Stardust, and he'd bring his, had a car pulled. You never see a car pulling a horse trailer. <laughs> no. No, <laughs> no. But back then, he had to go Cadillac pull that Fair horse enough. trailer. Fair enough. And Stardust, Stardust had rubber shoes on so he could walk in the gym <laughs> down here in the old, old school. Awesome. And... He played guitar, and he'd sing Little Brown Jug and songs like that, and Stardust would do tricks. And I got to know him in later years. It cost like a quarter to see that show. Yeah. Homer Harris was a good man. He was a top-notch good man. And, and he would go into the school, and it cost like, say, a quarter, and then He'd get all, they'd have their money and everything, and, and then Homer would go up to the principal's office and he'd say, now, all the kids you've got that didn't have a quarter, bring them on in, it's on me. That's awesome. Yeah. So you wanted them to see the show too, huh? Yep. Good. And uh, that's what he did. And, and you know, I, I tear up thinking about that because you just don't see people doing stuff like that anymore. I mean, we're, everybody's got some greedy or something. but. Uh, Homer did that show, and then we'd have the Cas Walker people. So I really hadn't seen any professional music much. And then 
Clark Seals, which uh, you, you might know him or your dad remembers, he, he's passed away. But Clark and, was a big Osborne Brothers fan. And the Osborne Brothers were gonna be down at uh, Harrogate, a uh, music barn they had down there. Mm -hmm. And he asked, Dad, reckon I'd like to go see him. Dad said, he probably would. So I just, young, I wasn't, wasn't old enough to drive or anything. And we went down there to see the Osborne Brothers. And, you know, they, any more bands will come out and they'll, they'll introduce them and they'll come out and they'll say, Oh, check, one, two, three, check, one, two, three. I uh, need a little more of the guitar on the monitor here. I need a little more, you know, and they stand there for another 10 minutes doing this mic check thing right. and all that. They had another band played and everything. The MC said, let's make welcome from the Grand Ole Opera in Nashville, Tennessee, the Osborne Brothers. They walked out and they looked at one another like, are you ready? And yeah, we're ready. And they said, he's a dynamite up out of sight backyard Romeo. And they went to singing that song. And I just, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stand myself. I was just so nervous and just tore up about that, <laughs> hearing them do that. And, and I said, I've got to do that. You didn't say you might do that before then? No. No, and then they had a Jimmy Martin homecoming. That's the biggest crowd of people I've ever seen in Sneedville over at the, what we call the old high school, yeah. which was the current high school then. Yeah. And they were standing in the, the whole lobby and up and down the halls, standing room only, at this bluegrass festival they put on here. And Jimmy Martin and people's in there. I mean, there's like 10 banjo players and, and uh, I never seen nothing like that. And I said, that's, <laughs> I, I won't do that. Right. So and it got you, like it being exposed me. to that got you. Yeah, and uh, so that's that's where all that started. But uh, you know, like yeah, Homer Harris. I, I keep thinking back, to Homer, what a good guy he was, and and I never forgot that. It's little things like that that happen that you don't forget, and uh, him letting all those kids come in. You know, and I taught school here for three years when I. I was actually finishing up my college and and uh, what everything. Did you teach? I taught math, algebra, and stuff like that, and then uh, I taught uh, industrial arts. And uh, so anyway, I know I had kids in school, and, and we'd have a field trip up every once in a while to go to the zoo or something. Yeah. And I said, look, here's the deal. It's going to cost us. $75 for all us to go to the zoo. Here's a jar. It's approximately dollar a piece or $3 a piece, whatever it was. When that jar has got $75 in it, we're all going to the zoo. It's <laughs> right. all or nothing. This is how you make it work. So if you've got a little more you can put in, you know, and the kids, kids were sensitive to that. And, and they said, look, you know, we know some can't, can't right. afford it, but I've got a little extra, you know, you know, we won't go. We'll go on this trip. Yeah. And they did that. And I thought, well, you know, that's teaching, teaching a good thing here. So, and it all goes back to Homer Harris on that thing yeah. about Homer. And then occasionally we'd have other people. I think there was somebody named Daisy May and somebody came put on some shows at school one time. I don't remember who they were, but it was a big deal. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, any time a tour night came to hit the old high school, like, people showed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even if it was, you know, uh, in the early 90s when I was growing up, it would be, you know, the Appalachian Wrestling Company or whatever it be, and they'd put on wrestling shows at the old high school. Man, they'd fill that place up. And oh, yeah. It, well, so if they came, people went. No, well, yeah, that's true. What I'm talking about were, were assembly programs that went on during the day. Yeah. During... during well, that's that's when that building was a functioning, you know, yeah, school. Yeah, during, during the during the school day, you know, that they would come and put on these these assembly programs and and Homer Harris and Stardust and I mean Stardust, you know, would he could count with his feet and he could get down on his knees and I mean he could do all kinds of good stuff. You I, know, I, I still think the the rubber shoes is what's cracking me up. Well, yeah, he had rubber shoes because he <laughs> had to go in the gym. He couldn't walk in the gym with his steel shoes on. Right. Messed everything up. And uh, it was just a good show, and Harbor Harris was such a nice guy. And, uh, but anyway, that's, that got me through that. And, and then over the years, I have always had a passion for traditional country music. And, not now when I say traditional I'm not talking about classic country classic country I, I figure more like Hank Williams and Red Foley and people back in that era in the 40s and, and early 50s and stuff like that and, and that, that's okay I mean Roy Acuff people like that that's good stuff and you know I listen to the Opry all the time but I'm talking about 60s and 70s countries where I really, that's what I really like. And that's the kind of stuff I record now is a lot of 60s and 70s. I learned to play steel guitar well enough to get by on the, doing some of my own home recordings and things. And if anybody wants to hear any of that. Yeah, tell them, tell them. I'll plug it here, it's real simple. Rick Campbell Music. YouTube. Go to YouTube and do a search for Rick Campbell Music. Is that your only social media outlet? Is that all you use? No, nah, I've got a personal Facebook page, and, and I usually put them on it, too. Just uh, Rick but, Campbell on Facebook. But, but YouTube's the easy spot. YouTube's the easy spot, and, and I put them on YouTube because YouTube has arrangements with uh, all the publishers, or most of them, and YouTube has got software that listens to your song and identifies it mm -hmm. and they know who wrote it and everything mm -hmm. and I can do a song and upstairs and I can walk downstairs while it's uploading and I said well I wonder if that's uploaded yet and I'll just get on my phone and go to YouTube yeah, and see if it's on there and it'll be there and it'll say you've got a, a copyright claim yep which is not a bad thing no, it just knows that they know what it is. It, it, it says we've identified, and it, if I happen to talk some and, and introduce the song, he'll say between 15 seconds and so-and-so we identified, <laughs> you know, and I think, well, at least I can play it well, well enough that they can recognize what it is. <laughs> That's gotta be some kind of compliment. Yep, <laughs> but then it says, you're not in any trouble or anything like that. We, we don't care. But you can't monetize right. this. And so the ads that show up on YouTube that people, when you watch a, a YouTube and 
first thing they're going to tell you is, that, hey, you know, if you like what it's subscribe to my channel, they're doing that because they get money. Right. What they're telling me is, have fun, but <laughs> you're not making any money off this because the the people that own the the copyright to this song is the ones going to make the money. Right. And that's fine with me. Because you're just making the music because you're making I'm music. Just, I just want to preserve the music and right. and just do whatever a little bit I can do, and uh, so I'm happy for them to make money and they and they deserve every penny of it and I don't want any of it so it it all works out good for me to do it that way, but uh, I do that and record a little stuff you know like that don't play a lot of shows out anymore and uh, as far as as music goes, the Grand Ole Opry, I grew up on the Grand Ole Opry, and the music I'm playing is what you would have heard on the Opry back in the 60s and 70s. And I'd be out on Saturday night, and there was a couple of people, I won't mention the names again, but there was a couple of people on the Opry that I just absolutely couldn't stand. <laughs> and it seemed like when they would come on the Opry, it would be, it's just all AM radio, 6.50 AM on your car radio. It'd be like they were sitting right there in the car with you. It'd be so crystal clear, yeah. you know. I said, man, this, this is great. <laughs> and then it'd say, they'd play a commercial by Kellogg's, the Corny Slates, and anybody makes is Kellogg's, or go get a Goo Goo cluster, it's good, and all those. Which they are delicious. They are. <laughs> and then they say, now let's make a welcome. A member of the Country Music Hall of Fame, Bill Monroe, <laughs> and all this static come on, you yeah. know. Oh, my. And I'd wheel the car around and try to get back to where I was at when it was coming in good to see if it would come in good so I could hear Bill Monroe or Jim and Jesse or the Austin Brothers or somebody or Wilma Lee Cooper or somebody like that on the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, most time that didn't work. I mean, but, <laughs> right. But I I do whatever I can do. And then I mentioned earlier the Grand Ole Opry would come on uh, every once in a while a televised portion of the Opry. It came on the public TV channels. Mm -hmm. And if you could find out when that's coming on, and it didn't happen all the time. Just every once in a while, it'd be a one-hour portion of the Opry. And I would arrange my whole schedule around that. I mean, I'd, I'd plan out where I was going to be, and I had to be somewhere on Saturday night that I could be close to a TV yeah. to see the Grand Ole Opry. And if I had to call in sick to work or take off or whatever I had to do, I didn't want to miss that. Now, I get channels on, on the TV, and they have the Opry on there just all the time. And I don't even watch it. I mean, it's there because <laughs> the the music has changed, yeah. and there's some very talented people that are doing it, and and I'm happy for them, and I hope they make a bunch of money and, and all that. They're getting plenty of recognition and everything, but it's not what I want to hear. Right. It's not. It, it don't do it for me. I'm into the other stuff, and got some friends out in Texas that do a lot of traditional country, and and it's not that they're doing the old songs they do that but they also write new songs but you would think they were something that was generated in the yeah in that 60s and 70s era 
So they're doing the, the preservation work and making original work in that same. Right. Well, that's awesome. Right. And I've got some friends out there doing that, and, and one of my buddies out there runs a, a studio, and Cherry Ridge Recording Studio. Tommy, that's your plug. <laughs> and uh, they record that, that good stuff. And uh, I, that's kind of what I follow. And I'm all for the other stuff, and people do what they want to do. And I can play the, the other stuff. But I it, don't enjoy playing it as much. It's, it's not interesting to me. It's not interesting to me at all. And uh, no. So. Well, outs do you listen to any kind of music for pleasure outside of this wheelhouse, or is this all all the media you listen to? This this kind of bluegrass, this kind of music. Well, I don't really listen to a lot of music. Uh, I guess you listen, you hear a lot because you play, but you don't seek out a lot of music. If I do, it's because I'm hunting something to record that that maybe, you know, I'm not interested in recording Merle Haggard's Working Man Blues, or Today I Started Loving You Again, <laughs> or, or, I don't want to single him out like that, but, songs that had just been done so much right so you want the more obscure stuff i want the more obscure stuff that people say man that's a good song where'd you hear that right and i said well you know you would hear that if you look <laughs> they're they're casual right they're casual listeners they just they just wait for it to be fed to them and i'm out looking for it that's the difference yeah but but you learn a lot in the pursuit oh yeah 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 yeah, I learn a lot, and I write some stuff, too. And uh, so every now and then, I'll, I'll do an original song. So is, is Lover's Waltz an original song? No, that's Jay Unger. Okay. Jay Unger is the same guy. He's a fiddle player. He's the same guy that wrote Ashokan Farewell that was a theme song in the movie about the Civil War, whatever the name of that movie was. <laughs> so, where it was. Anyway... Back in, uh, I guess, the 90s or something like that. Because by the time that made the rounds, and I recorded that and put three fiddles on it in harmony. Yeah. But Ashokan's Farewell, it's a beautiful song. By the time it got out and got popular, people say, play that Civil War song. I said, what? I don't know what name it is. I said, Ashokan's Farewell? Yeah, yeah. And then I hear them talking to their buddies. They say, that song there has been passed down all the way from the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. It, right. was, it was written for the movie in modern years here. It's, it's, it's not a, from back in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I guess it, it's a good thing if it gets mistaken in that way, if you're trying to play that style. I guess. I, but it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a complicated tune and... Uh, See, the thing about playing fiddle, and really most instruments, but fiddle especially, Buddy Spiker's one of the great fiddle players in Nashville. He's, he's one of the 18 in Nashville through the years. Super, super fiddle player, super, super nice guy. He said a fiddle player is only as good as his rhythm section. So to play fiddle by itself, it don't sound too good. And to play it with people that that 
can't play the song or something, that sounds even worse. Right, because now there's more bad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's just a cumulative effect. <laughs> and, you know, what happens, I'm trying to be upbeat here, but there's, you just have to be truthful and, and take it like it is. I've learned a lot of fiddle tunes and stuff, a lot of the Monroe music, stuff like that. And then people call me, fiddle players, and they'll say, could you teach me how to play Monroe's Hornpipe? Or some, some Bill Monroe tune. Uh, yeah. I said, why do you want to know, know that? Well, so I can play it. I said, who with? Right. Well, I said, you know, not bragging or nothing like that, because you know that that just happens to be my thing, is this, this, this kind of music. Right. But who do you know that could play the rhythm to that so you could play it besides me? <laughs> and not that they're not capable, they just haven't took time to learn it, you know? Well, that, that, I guess that second degree of this thought it hasn't come across their mind yet, you know? Obviously, you want to play it, but who are you going to play it with well, matters, right. too. That's right. Yeah. And they'll say, well, I don't know. I don't think that's it. You know, I've been through this, and, and things have changed. Used to, guitar players would take time to learn all these tunes. So when they got around the fiddle player, they could say, "Hey, can you play such and such song?" Yeah, okay, let's play that. And they took pride in being able to do that. But now, the music has changed to where all they care about is just playing enough so they can sing mm -hmm. and and follow their self singing. And uh, so you learn all this complicated stuff, and then you get out and play shows. You have to play Sally Gooden and Bile the Cabbage Down and stuff like that because that's the only thing that the yeah. band really knows to play. They can't play the other stuff. And doing the best you can do, this is one of those cases, doing the best you can do don't work unless the best you can do is adequate. You know, if there's good... There's good players, and then there's better players, and all that, that some that I like better than others, but fundamentally, you've got to be able to play the song if you're a rhythm player. Yeah. And it's like, if you if you hire somebody to drive you to Myrtle Beach on oh, vacation, they you they might have two or three guys, you might say, well, you know, I like old Joe, he really drives real smooth, and. And he's always on time, and he, he gets, you know, and, and just real enjoyable. And the other guy, you know, he, I don't know, he's so rough and everything. But, you know, they both get me there, you know. Yeah. So you might like one better than you do the other. But if you hired me to take you to Myrtle Beach, and you end up in Cincinnati. You didn't do the job. You didn't do the job. <laughs> and doing the best you can do, and I'm just trying to follow you, you know, I'll just do the best. That's not good enough. You've got to have people. So I try to, the Bible says to not be unequally yoked. And we always took that to mean a, a man and wife being believers or, or whatever, having the same thoughts on religion and things. But I think it applies to people playing in a band. If you've got a band and, you know, part of the band's wanting to play Bill Monroe music and the other parts wanting to play uh, Led Zeppelin or something, you know, Probably not gonna work it's out. unequally yoked. It's not going <laughs> to work. So you need everybody kind of on the same page right. to make it work. And uh, so 
that a lot of it's got to do with that and, and having the people play with and that's one reason I do a lot of stuff I do on my own because I you know how you like to play. I know what I want to do and, and it's no I prefer to have a you know four or five players in the studio with me and us all get in there and grind and, and do it but it's not feasible right and I can do it myself if I want to play couple hours a day on the song and then wait a week or two and play another couple hours and put it all together. I can do that on my own schedule and uh, all that. And it's cheap to do it that way. I don't have to pay anybody. Right. <clears throat> that, that's, that's got a lot to, to do with it and, and the music and, and, and getting out and playing, you know, and, and doing what you enjoy. And, and, and so, you, you know, when people Every now and then I'll play with a band somewhere and they'll say, can you play such and such a song? I heard that on the radio come down here. Some instrumental, you know, Cheyenne or some Bill Monroe instrumentals. Yeah, I can play it. I said, the question is, can you play it? <laughs> well, uh, and most time I know the answer to that before I ask them. Right, because they ask you. Yeah. <laughs> they'll say, well, uh, I, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I try to follow you. Well, you don't follow the fiddle player. The fiddle player follows the rhythm. <laughs> and I said, they'll say, what key do you play it in? I said, I play it in the same key that everybody that can play it plays it in. <laughs> and if you don't know what that is, you won't be able to play it. Right. Now, you can go home and listen to it and practice like I did, and then you'll be able to play it. You're a good player. Yeah. But this is not something that you can just fake your way through. It right. Won't, it won't work. Trust me on that. We've got to we've got to go back to old Joe Clark and buy the cabbage down, and, and <laughs> if, if we're gonna do that. <laughs> well, can we uh, switch gears a little bit? And yes. Talk, talk about um, what your studio looks like, what your creative process is, if you want to talk about it, um, and what kind of softwares and how you interface with with your process. Okay. My studio is very elaborate. <laughs> it's it's a spare bedroom in the house that. It's about 10 by 10, and we turned it into a music room. It's got centers all around a computer. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's four computers in there, matter of fact, but one of them gets 90% of the use. The others are kind of for spares and different stuff. Kind of got upgraded, but to keep the old ones. And uh, all centers around that computer. I use several different pieces of software to do some drums and uh, I use something called band in a box and uh, I use a program called easy drummer I use a program called easy keys these are all MIDI programs and, and what MIDI MIDI is people that know anything about this know know what MIDI is but people that don't MIDI is just a computer language that's geared toward music. Mm -hmm. And music is all mathematics. It, it's, all, it's all about frequencies. You know, an A note is 440 cycles. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an A. And when you tune an instrument, the standard tuning is a 440. And used to you had a tuning fork and you'd bang that tuning fork on your knee or your hand or something and it'd ding, you know like a bell and you tuned that that was the a and then you could figure the rest of them out as you went 
Now you got electronic tuners that tune every every note right to the very right to know, the true. Note. Yeah, the, the in sense it goes in frequencies and then in sense, C E N T S, and uh, so MIDI. That's why you can take a computer and make music because the computer don't know anything about music. Right. It knows mathematics and it knows to generate a certain frequency for a certain period of time. And then that's the same. And that's it. Yeah. And and you can do that. And if you want to go faster, you can make it go faster. You can make it go slower. And then, so I do that and generate a basic rhythm track of drums stuff. I, sometimes I, I usually play the bass myself, and I play the guitars and the other instruments myself. But the drums, I use a, that program, and then it's down. It's it's solid. It's it's not going to change. It's going to stay the same every time. Right. And uh, so I do that. Then I start adding instruments, and I can put as many tracks as I want with each instrument on a separate track. And then I do the vocals and the harmony vocals, and I mix it all together and do an EQ on each one, the, the bass and treble things, and some compression. Uh, what's compression? Okay, compression keeps you from, you know, if, if you get real loud, you know, then you have to turn that down a little bit. And then if you're not loud enough, you know, you, you gotta turn that you up. Gotta turn that up. Compression, does exactly that. It compresses all that together into a, I tell you, a, a good example of compression is a telephone. And you've heard people through the years, they were getting these prank calls and hanging up on them and stuff like that. They'd say, I fixed him. I waited that phone rung and I shouted just as loud as I could in that phone. I busted his ears out. No, you didn't. It don't work that way. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> it don't work that way. It's limited as to how loud it can get. Right. Now you can hear, you know that the guy on the other end is shouting at the top of his lungs. But it's not. But it's not busting your eardrum out. Right. It's just it's just a realization that he's <laughs> shouting. So that's what compression does, but it's not to that extent. Right. It just smooths things out. You do it on every instrument, most of the time. And then you mix it all together and you pan it, some of it left and some of it right. And I'm learning all this as I go. And, Hey, me too. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, and, and there's just a lot, lot to it. Lot my my newest toy in the studio is a set of headphones that they went to big professional studios, famous ones. I mean, you heard about like Abbey Road in the, in England, you know, where the Beatles recorded. They went to studios like that that had these big rooms that were treated acoustically and yeah. everything. The big problem in the big problem in recording is you sit there and you mix all this together, and it sounds great. You say, "Man, I, I really yeah. did good." Then you burn it to a CD. Then you come down and you put it in your car and say, "Let's see what it sounds like in the car." And either you can't hear the bass, or it's Busting the windows out, yeah. and they, the term for that is translate. They say the mix didn't translate, and guys that know their stuff, and I'm fortunate to have some friends that know their stuff. 
Trey Reeves Recording Studio, <laughs> Floresville, Texas, Tommy Dedimore. There's you another plug, Tommy. I call him every now and then and he says, well, try this, try that, and he yeah. knows. And, and what he says usually works. So he's your first call? Yeah, yeah he's first call. <laughs> and Bill Terry is another one out there. But uh, anyway, he's a steel player, both those guys steel players. And uh, to get it to translate, and you learn your, you treat your room, and you put absorbent panels up and stuff, but you know, you gotta know what you're doing or you just make it worse. Yeah. And so I've done some of that, and, and then you learn kind of to allow for certain things, and you get a little better than that. But my latest toy is a set of headphones and software that they went to all these famous studios and they identified what's supposed to happen. Oh, so they set up these headphones to sound like the room? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So I, so I said it, when I mix a song, I mix it and I say, well, that sounds pretty good. Click, click, and see what it sounds like in this other studio. Yeah. Click, click, and see what it sounds like on a boom box. Click, click, and see what it sounds like in a SUV that's on that really radio. Cool. Click, click, I can see <laughs> what it sounds like on a, just a small radio. Yeah. And, and you know, the, to go out and buy a set of head, now, a set of headphones, I mean, you know, $500 is, is a, you know, you can spend $500 on a set of headphones. Easy. 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 <laughs> or, or a set of studio monitors that Easy. cost three or $400 a piece. Mm -hmm. They say they really sound good. But you find out once you get into this, you don't want equipment that sounds good. You want equipment that sounds real. Yeah, that, yeah. That you want equipment that what you hear in that room and you mix and you burn it to a CD when you get out to your car that it sounds like that. Yeah. And through the years, I noticed that, that commercial recordings and stuff it didn't matter if I listened to them on a, uh, in the car or a little set of wedge speakers sitting in the back window of the car yeah. or an AM radio, it always sounded good. Now when you listen on your phone to YouTube, and I'll tell everybody, if you listen to my stuff on Facebook or YouTube, if you really want to hear what it sounds like, get some headphones of some kind put on. You will not hear any bass. Yeah, that, those tiny little speakers don't do it the best. You won't hear any bass through that. So, but being able to, you know, get a little closer, and that's the problem I have, is I've not learned when to say enough's enough. Because I, I sit and mix, and then I get it almost mixed, and then this one note maybe I hit on a guitar or something, it just keeps bugging me. So I'm, I'm glad you say that, because I've kind of got a recurring theme about uh, talking about people's workflows and it sort of happened by accident in December when I was sitting around talking to one of my, uh, a group of my buddies where we did our one year anniversary you know uh, uh, episode and we came on a topic of demons in your workflow you know the, the things that piss you off about what you're doing or uh, things you haven't changed things that cause friction when you're doing what you're doing yeah so, and and you just I didn't even have to ask you just start telling me about that and I find those things to be really really um, 
it really tells you a lot about how analytical someone is about what they do because oh, yeah. if they don't have any of those then they're not paying attention to yeah. what they're doing or they've got it figured out yeah and that's generally not the case so well i'm glad we found that point it goes it goes back to you know the old the old the old ways and stuff probably have stuck around for years for a reason and you know the old saying that i've heard all my life and you have too is that we're our, our own worst critics oh yeah but trust me, I hear that when I hear my recorded voice as well. <laughs> sure you do. And you know, and that's another thing about playing an instrument. And I had to learn this is when I've got a fiddle stuck under my chin, that's a sound that nobody else is ever going to hear except me. Yeah, because it's in your, you know, it's on you. It's right. Literally, it's, it's, it's on right you. there in my face. Yeah. What they're hearing standing across the room is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So when I record, you know, and, and I've, I've thought, well, boy, you know, I've heard this guy playing this fiddle, and I thought, man, that fiddle. If I had that fiddle right there, <laughs> I could really make some music. And maybe later on in the day or something, I said, you know, would you care if I played your fiddle? No, yeah, right, give and it I was like, "Gee, you know, what, <laughs> what a dog this it, is!" It wasn't. It wasn't the golden fiddle, was it? it? No, and fiddle players are funny. I would never guess. I know. I know guitar players. I know guitar players and banjo players and mandolin players and everything. Oh, buddy, I've got the best guitar. I've got the best <laughs> guitar. They ain't nothing. Nothing come up with it. Nowhere in this country. But I don't know of any fiddle player that's totally satisfied with his fiddle, if he can really play. Right. Now, some of them can't play, it don't make any difference. <laughs> but if they can play, it's like, oh, doggone fiddle, it's acting up today. <laughs> and, uh, but a good fiddle player can make any fiddle that's decent and, and set up right and everything, they can make them sound pretty good if they can play. Right. And I've sat down and took four or five fiddles and recorded the same song, same uh, melody of a song or something, five times with different fiddles to see, you know, which one's best. If I didn't know, you would have been able to pick, I wouldn't been able to pick which one was which. And then you record stuff and they'll have a note in it. I've got stuff recorded right now that when that song's playing, I know exactly where that little place is at, <laughs> and I just have to grit my teeth. <laughs> and then if somebody's in the car with me, we're going down the road, and, and they I'm just thinking, see you tighten up. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm thinking, are they going to notice this or not? Usually they don't. Never do. Never <laughs> do. It's all. It's all about the singing. People focus on the singing. Yeah. You know, they don't focus on the music. They, and a lot of people don't realize. The singers that they really, really like to hear sing, if they didn't have the music behind them, they probably wouldn't enjoy them too much. Right. But they don't give those musicians a lot of credit. Say, oh, that song's a boy, he's good. Yeah, well, okay. But, uh, yeah, it's, that, that's it. So I've got the, the headphones and I can kind of do that. And that's workflow. You mentioned workflow, so yeah, yeah. That, that's a term that, that studio people know is workflow. And everybody's always looking for a way to- uh, Make to it easier, make it shorter. Their work yeah. or, or streamline their workflow. 
And I found a few ways, and I've got some templates set up that if I get ready to do a, if I get ready to do a bluegrass song, I've got a template, and I, if I do a country song, it's a different template. Right. And everything's already set up there. I know pretty well what it's going to. If it's a bluegrass song, it's going to probably be five instruments and maybe a couple of extra fiddles sometimes, and uh, maybe three vocals. That's about what it's going to take for a bluegrass song. Well, I I like asking that question because nobody has the same answer. No two people, even if they do the same thing, have the same answer for that. And I, I enjoy seeing the variety of it. And I think it's a really important question when you talk to people that are passionate about the thing that they do. And that's really the reason I ask it. I mean, there's, there's a thousand ways we could nerd out and be really techy about that question. But I really like to find where people put the finesse on it and, and really like fine tune the things that they do in their workflow. And uh, the, the counter question to that is how cathartic is your creative experience? Like how good does it feel or does it benefit you like mentally or physically in some way that you got this out there somehow? And I feel like those two answers come really close together with either one of those questions. They do. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're right on the money with that. And, and I do it because it's, a, it's just something I do. I mean, I don't watch, I don't know, I didn't know who played in the Super Bowl because somebody mentioned it the other day. But, but, <laughs> but prior, you, didn't, you didn't follow prior it. Prior to the Super Bowl, I didn't know who was playing. <laughs> it's not important to me. Right. I don't know, I don't know the name of any players on the Tennessee Vols football team. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them and I hope they do real well, but. But that, that, that level of thing. information, yeah. It's not my thing. But the music. I try to do what I can, and I realize that it's not going to be the same quality as it would be if I was in Nashville at a half million dollar studio with with microphones that cost more than all my equipment put together. Yeah, one, one <laughs> yep. microphone, you know, a, a U87. <laughs> Uh, Newman microphone or something that costs you know thirty five hundred dollars. Is that a ribbon mic? Super expensive? No, they're a condenser, large okay. condenser mic. But, uh, but yeah, ribbon mics. Yeah, but, you know that one mic costs more than all my stuff. But <laughs> but and I realize it's not going to be that, and I realize I'm not the A team. That I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy that can play a little bit, and. Sometimes I think I'm, I've got the advantage of time on my side. I'm not paying $200 an hour for studio time right. that I have to rush through it. If I get just not having a good day, I'm just turn the thing off and walk off and come back some other time and work right. on it maybe when I'm playing better. Well, that is a luxury, you know, versus the context of we're here and we got this amount of time to do this thing. That's right. Yeah, it so, is definitely a luxury. So I can compensate a little bit. And if I go in the studio with somebody, a lot of times I'll play and, and we get through the song and, and a lot of times it's overdubs. People people are overdubbing everything now that used to, everybody be in the studio at the same time. And now they like to just do like I'm doing at home really, but have different musicians doing it. You know, or people send me an email with a, a song and say, we want you to put fiddle on this or steel guitar or something. And I record them a track and email it back to them. And then they put it all together. 
how I do it that way. You lose the interaction. Yeah, and that and that's why I like having these conversations in person as most I can because if there's something between you and who you're trying to work with, the chemistry isn't the same. That's right. Now, I don't mind one bit to do Zoom calls or teleconference or whatever it is if that's the person's preference, but if, if in any way I can sit there and talk to you in person, I would much rather do it. Nothing beats one-on-one when you're, when you're discussing these things because you can interact and, and musicians get a, a language going between them. It's an unspoken language and, mm-hmm. and, and especially people that you play with a lot because I can, and I can think so fast. I mean, I'm like a lightning sonic computer when I'm playing. I can be playing and thinking four or five notes ahead of where I'm playing about yeah. what I'm going to do. It's like I, I play, what I'm playing currently, I've already just put into a, like a memory. It's went from your head to your hands and now yeah, the next it, thing's there. And I'm, I'm just acting on that. Yeah. And then I'm, while I'm doing that, I'm thinking now, what's coming up here is a chord change to a two chord. And I think I'll do this to go into that. And then I, I'm thinking, well, this guy, he don't know this song. Well, he think I'm doing something different if I get that far away from the melody. Maybe I'll just stay where I'm at and keep it simple so he don't go off in the wrong direction. Yeah. And you you can think all that stuff. <clears throat> it takes minutes to talk about it, but it's yeah. split second timing while you're playing. It's like, it's like walking. If you get up to walk across the room, you don't have to say, well, I'll see, first thing I'm going to do is put my left foot out here, and then I'm going to follow that with my right foot, and then I'll go another step with that. You don't have to think about all right. that. Right, yeah. But that, that's the way that works in, in recording. And when I get in the studio and people would do a song, they'll say, well, what do you think? I'll say, it don't matter what I think. <laughs> I'm working for you. Right. When it, if, if it suits you, just say, yeah, that's good, and let's go on. I said, because if you're waiting on me to say I'm 100% satisfied, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> we'll be here all day. Because I've yeah. never done nothing that, that I could walk out from and say, boy, I, I really nailed that. <laughs> right? I, I'm not that good. Well, and, and that that's damn near everything, too. And, you know, uh, every kind of creative person has that. And it's it's... I like seeing how everybody handles that too, because yeah. if you make or do, you probably can nitpick that until the sun goes down yeah. without hassle. So uh, that mental back and forth is also a really uh, a, a fun thing I like to poke at with with people, because you really figure out how much they either enjoy or don't, or uh, how granular they care to be about the thing after they've done it. Right. And sometimes. Like I've, I've found pieces in my life that I've made that I, I just have to let them go. You know, they're out in the wind now. Yeah. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. They're not, it's not for me anymore. Well, you have to, you have to do some, uh, some, uh, forfeiting your, your expectations and, and things sometimes. I mean, stuff I've recorded, you know, years past, I wasn't happy with and you know, nobody else has a problem. And I said, well, you know, if they're happy, I'm, I you know, just have to be. I'm glad you used the word expectations. Yeah, because I, I set my goals too high sometimes. And, <laughs> and I just can never. And the same, I, I talk about mixing. When I'm mixing a song, it's always like, well, that one note just keeps happening. So I'm going to go back to the track where I recorded that, and I'm going to redo that track. Yeah. 
Then I'm going to go back and mix it again. Then say, well, that mix is pretty good, but maybe that bass could be a little louder on that second verse. Yeah. So and I just on and on and on and on. And sooner or later, and these songs that I do, and I do videos with them, and, and, and I've learned how to do video editing where I can show me playing the different instruments. I'm, yeah. I'm all there like a one-man band thing. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of your videos. You have it like uh, in, in quadrants, or you'll be, yeah. you know, yeah. you'll have the, the screen separated where we can see you playing all the instruments right. at once. And that takes a lot of time. That's a whole different body of work. That's a whole, it's yeah. a whole new, and I'm learning that. And it's not really hard. It's a pretty steep learning curve, but once you know the process, I, I, I can do them now. I, mean, yeah. I can jump in there and do it pretty good, but I'm trying to learn new stuff. Yeah. I, I'm, I've got a new project I'm trying to do. I won't even let that out. Well, I'll go and say it. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do one that looks like me standing on stage that you got a band there, but they're all me. Oh, <laughs> it's not separate right. screens, you know. It sounds, it sounds like you need some uh, some green screen stuff. Yeah, maybe. Well, it, it yeah, it's it's merging yeah merging screens and, and stuff or cloning. That's what they call it. Is cloning. that what they call it? All right. But it's learning to do that, and I I enjoy doing that. And then you know I have somebody occasionally says, well you know that steel guitar on that. Uh, you know, I, I could show you how Buddy Emmons played that sometime. I said, Look, if I want to sound like Buddy Emmons, I'd have hard Buddy Emmons to play. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not anymore, but but, but, he's, but he's that would have been But the the same thing. I said, look, I know it's not the same quality as what you're going to get coming out of Nashville with with High Daughter Studios and and the very best musicians that you can buy, but. When you can go in a spare bedroom in your house by yourself and do everything you and need and come out with something better than I'm doing, then let's talk about it because I don't know better. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, <laughs> and, I, and, and, and that's just the general curiosity about doing what you do. You know, you find anybody doing the thing that you do, sort of, and you're like, well, you want know, to talk, compare notes. Uh, oh, yeah. Relevant. Yeah, we do. And, and I have other people that, that do the same thing, and we enjoy getting together and talking about it. And, you know, a buddy of mine just used to talk about learning this stuff. Here, a few years ago, we was talking about mix and stuff. And he said, I'll tell you a good secret. He said, I learned a long time ago. I said, what's that? He said, when you got your song going, you get everything working good. He said, take that Meister Fader, which that's, that's one that controls everything. Yeah. He said, if you think you got it pretty good, he said, start pulling that down. Pulling it down, 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 down. You want it to where the last thing you hear is the vocal. And if it's the last thing you hear, you know the vocal's out in front and people can hear that yeah. and it's not getting covered up by any of the other music. So that's a pretty simple thing. I've yeah. never thought of that. So I tried to do that. But yeah, yeah, I like to, I like to hear the singing. And, you know, of course, I go back to the, Old eight track tape days, and you're you're too young to remember. I, I am. <laughs> I am too young to remember. Well, let, that. let me explain something about eight track tapes to <laughs> Let's you. Let's hear it. Eight track tapes were a continuous loop. Yeah. They they played all the way through, and then they started at the beginning again. That's why you could put one in, and it just play the you know thirty minute tape over and over. But you that tape was a 
two two tracks, I guess, on there. Yeah, and and then a left and right. So so two stereo tracks, yeah. a left and right, and a left and right. Okay, you had a head, the recording head, playback head, magnetic tape running across there playing that. Yeah, and. You had to adjust that head. Some of them had an adjustment on the front of the tape player itself that you could adjust that. Because what happened, when you put your tape in a different player, if it wasn't adjusted right, you'd hear two songs playing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. So that's, yeah. that's, that's total news to me. Yeah, you'd hear you'd hear the, the main song, then in the background, you'd hear another song playing. <laughs> and you had that, to adjust The head it. wasn't the right place on, right. on the, the tape. Right, on a vertical. Oh, okay. Plane. It was a. It was out of adjustment, and uh, yeah. So I, I lived through that. <laughs> <laughs> what a tragedy! And uh. and used to, uh, you would see eight tracks or cassettes, even out on the highway going up down the interstate. You'd see this big long strung out thing, and it'd be somebody's cassette or eight track tape thing got rid of and threw it out the window. and it just got just, mad at it and threw it out the window. Yeah, and it just uh, tape strung everywhere. Well, Rick, there's there's about two questions that we haven't covered, and I've been really happy I haven't had to blatantly ask you the questions I would normally ask a lot of other people because we've been able to weave them into conversation here. But uh, what's it like? I, I normally ask people, what's it like being a creative person where they're at? So what's it like being a creative person in Hancock County? Well... Hancock County's home and we've got a lot of creative people around here and I'm creative more musically I guess and and then I've got my other hobbies I mean we're sitting here in my garage and you can see all my little toys around here and all the antique radios that I'm restoring and I'm trying to learn how to do that yeah this this looks like a fun place to be for it, a person it's, like myself. it's a fun tinker place but we've got a lot of creative people that creative in a lot of ways I, I was glad to get back to Hancock County because it's home and you know it means something to know people and be able to go to town and know you're going to recognize somebody and, and be able to talk to a friend yeah and you don't have that in the I mean I, I you know I live in Knoxville and sometimes there are days where I don't see anybody I know and I'm pretty okay with it yeah just to contrast your statement you know there's yeah you and know I, I lived in somebody. Knoxville for about 20 years and and you know I my immediate neighbors, you know, next door neighbors, I knew, but people on down the street, I didn't know who they were. Right. Yeah. I, I know, I know two people on my street. My immediate neighbor and one across and to the right. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. But, but to be creative here, we don't have a lot of things going on. I mean, we don't have any recording studios and and stuff like that. But we've got, you know, people from here. I mean. The, Jimmy Martin, of course, grew up in Sneedville and, and was born and raised here. And, and now I'm telling you, you can go anywhere in the world in a bluegrass music setting and mention Jimmy Martin, and they'll know who you're talking about. Yep. And when I was out on the road with bands and people found out I was from Sneedville, they would come around and and want to talk about Jimmy because Jimmy never made it a secret that Sneedville was his hometown. True that he did not. And and, and now we've got Morgan Wallen, and Morgan's, you know, making a, a name for himself. Yep. And doing real well, I understand, and and it's in a newer wave of of country music that 
that I don't really understand myself, but uh, he's doing real well. And he's doing what, you know, if I was gonna play music for a living, the stuff I do wouldn't be on the plate. Right. Because I know it's not popular. I'm in a niche music. Yeah, you're not gonna find traditional bluegrass on the radio unless it's a mm. specific show no, for that. No, you're not. And, uh, you know, and or, or traditional country, you know, you just, you just don't hear it anymore. So if you're gonna do it to make a living, do what makes the money and do what's right. popular now. <laughs> right. That, that, that's what I'd advise anybody to do. But I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to do that. I can do what I want to. And I do have a, a people that that are in the same category that we bounce ideas off one another and, and things like that that are into kind of music and, and can appreciate what I'm doing, I think. But yeah, to be here is, is a good place as any. I mean, it's, right. <laughs> it, you know, you can just do what you want to do and, and you got friends and you go to town, you see people you know and and people are good people here. I, there, there's a lot of good people here and, and I was glad to get back. My wife loves it here and she's got her honeybees that she raises her honeybees and she raises all kinds of plants and herbs and spices and things like that and I help her with that as much as I, I can. and. We just got a good good life here. I, I can't complain about anything. Well, it certainly treated me well growing up. I mean, I moved to Knoxville when I, just before I turned 21, and uh, the first 20 years of my life here, I can't scoff at. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't ever hesitate to come back. You know, right. I, I don't. I really don't. Uh, one of my favorite things. Uh, you've you've been to my parents' house, right? Yes. Uh, you you know the view looking out towards the ridge from the yep. kitchen. Yes. I will never take that for granted. I love that view. Anytime I come home, I post a picture of it. Like I, I tell people, that's the view I grew up with. Like I sent pictures to people of it today when I got yeah. home. I love it. Uh, there's nothing in my life that'll ever replace it. So, you know, it, it's special to me too. And I'm really happy to be doing a podcast from Hancock County today because I haven't done that yet. I've been doing this for a year. This is episode number 31. I've had people from Sneedville in Knoxville on the show. But this is the first time I've recorded inside Hancock County Lines, and I'm really happy about it. Well, we've been talking about me, or I've been talking about me. I didn't mean to do that and dominate oh, that. Oh, no, that's why I'm here. I'm here to talk but, to you. But I want to know about you, what, what all you've been doing. And well, um, well, as, as a day job profession, I wrap cars for a living. And ironically enough, I saw one of the fruits of my labors uh, at Clinch River Market on the way up here. Uh, looks like a, a, a group of Porsche people had driven up and down the river or we're going to go for a drive somewhere uh, and start or stopped at the clinch river market so you know i pulled over on my way here and i walked over there and i didn't talk to a single person i just said you know walked around the car looked at it made sure everything was okay and came on up here and i was tickled to death to see my work in the middle of hancock county yeah uh now i know we got good driving roads around here but i don't know everybody knows about that and these guys knew about that and i was really happy to see yeah. it so i took a picture snapped it sent it to my boss i said look who i found you know just in the middle of hancock county here surprised the shit out of him yeah. Um, but yeah i wrap cars and uh you know like i said that's my day job i really enjoy it it gives me a lot of room to be creative uh, different set of problems every day you know well, let, keeps let, me on my toes let, let me Pick your brain. Well, go ahead, please. Uh, you do these cars, you do them every day, and obviously you're good at it, but I'm sure some turn out better than others. Yeah, definitely. And, and I know there's probably one every once in a while, there's a little something somewhere that 
that you know about. Yeah. And I'm, you say, oh man, I wonder if this guy never ever noticed that. Is that is that you know? And you talk to the boss, say, is this do they need to redo this or is this okay? That, that's that's a serious part of how we communicate in the shop. Yeah. Um, you know, Louie, my boss, he's he's got the final say on quality of stuff and. There'd been several times uh, over the almost three years I've worked for him where he's looked at me and just batted his eyelashes and be like, what'd you do? You know, like what, what happened? And uh, he said, well, we need to do it this way next time and uh, do this technique here and that technique yeah. there. And you know, when you start over, be a little more mindful of how you do it and do it this way. Yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's not always that it's wrong. It's just, it's just that should I, you know, there was another way to do this, would I, Would you prefer it I did it this way? Yeah, and, and, and I, we say a lot, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat, and that can yeah. apply to so many different things. And, uh, you know, there's there's an envelope within these these things that is, is acceptable of how you put them on and how you treat them. Sometimes you can do things that aren't exactly in the black and white and yeah. still fit within the, the parameters of the install. Uh, but uh, there's... There are the black and white rules of how to do the thing, and then there's the, all the stuff that works that isn't in the book. Exactly. You know, so there, there's a lot of techniques like that that get folded into the workflow. But uh, you know, we all know the criteria we're working within. Everybody understands it. Uh, we all know what we're looking at when when we're all working on something. So it's it's nice. So it's no different than being in a band and everybody understands. We it. we have to have a a, cons, a a concerted effort a lot of times yeah. because if it's not just one person working on a car, which it usually isn't, we uh, we honestly try to work across and away from whatever the other person is doing. So if somebody's working on a driver's door. Uh, the other person could be working on the rear passenger door and then when they're done with that they flip to the front passenger door and the rear driver's door or you know if somebody's working on the front passenger fender somebody's working on the driver's rear quarter yeah uh, and then you know you just kind of work your way around a vehicle and then there are certain parts of a vehicle that you know you might need another set of hands or two like hoods are sometimes funny uh, roofs are definitely uh, can be a pain if if they've got a lot of like uh, ribbing and texture to them uh, it there are ways to create uh, uh, a good workflow around a vehicle that involve two or three sets of hands that can be harmonious. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it takes two or three people to do one thing, yeah. and that's that's totally normal too. Like uh, taking a piece of vinyl that's 30 inches wide by 140 inches long, and you wrap it from one side of the bumper and you heat it up and stretch it around to the other side of the bumper. Like two people can't do that. It's it's uh, two people can't do it. It's insanely difficult sometimes, yeah. depending on the vehicle. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really important that everybody knows what's going on all the time. And you have to be able to effectively communicate that and understand what resources you have to do the job. Because if you cut a piece of material the wrong way, you might not have only screwed your piece of material, but literally every other piece of material that you're gonna pull off that roll. Like, yeah, because it, it all has to match. And, and there, there's patterns and all that. Yeah. It's, it's, if, if we're not talking about uh, directional colors, like a lot of metallics and color shift things are directional colors, the way the light has to bounce off the material. But if it's just a plain color that we're messing with that we can cut whatever off the roll, it's a lot like Tetris because you know you, know, you, know you need um, six pieces that are four inches wide by six inches long to do roof racks or something. And then somebody cuts something off the end the wrong way and now you have uh, six pieces that are 58 inches long, uh, it kind of screws you a little bit. So, but don't it get under your skin when people that don't know 
and they oversimplify it talking about it. Like, and I'm, I'm, of course, going back to the music, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, he just, he just plays them different instruments and, and records that stuff on, uh, on his recorder and then he just bitches it all together. Right. You know, it's just, and you know, and, and they say, oh, wrapping those cars, it, it's not that big a deal. They do uh, they do the fenders and then they do the hood and then they do the doors. They just do them separate and then they just put it all together. No, you know, it's no but, big deal. But sometimes, yes, they, some people do oversimplify it and they tell me that straight to my face like they know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. And I think you find that in any industry, really. Uh, I think you do. But uh, is, does it get under my skin? Yeah. Do I know that at some point if I let that guy keep talking, he's going to swallow his foot? Yeah. yeah. So I generally just let them keep talking until they put their foot in their mouth. Yeah. And I don't, like, I'm not really about calling people out in those conversations. I'm not going to tell a whole lot of people, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm like, I'm not that guy, but I will sit here and watch you mess up while you know you, while you think you know what yeah. you're talking about. And yeah. then I'll tell you why you're wrong after you realize you're wrong, but I'm going to let you do that first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's oddly entertaining to me because that you know I know what I'm talking about, but well, I don't know. I don't hold that against people. If you know, we're all guilty of oh, we are. like we know and, what we're talking about. <laughs> I know I can, I know I can watch a uh, I can watch a a football game. Now, obviously, I don't watch very much, but if I see it, it looks pretty simple to me that they're just throwing the ball and one's trying to get from one end to the other, and they're right. kind of colliding and falling down on top of one another and things. It, it don't seem that complicated, but I've got enough sense to know There's that a every move that. <laughs> that they make is accounted for, and and they've got plans and all their play books yep. and all that stuff. It, it, they take it very seriously, and I, I'm glad they do. Yeah, there's there's a finesse to it. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, some fenders can take 10 minutes. Some fenders take 40 minutes. Yeah. It really just depends. Uh, shapes, geometries, the way the corners fold, the way the metal's welded together, where the panel seams are. Like, yeah. I could talk for an hour just about how to exactly. do a fender. Uh, and, and I don't blame people for not knowing because most people aren't in the position to know. Right. Uh, and it's not like... But you can, you can, I can appreciate somebody, you know, I was very honored back when your grandfather was principal of the high school. He asked me to come and do the commencement address. And I said, well, you know, why you want me? I said, <laughs> I, I, I'm a nobody. I said, they usually get somebody important, you know, like a, a, a big ball player or a, a, a congressman or president of a college or something. I said, I'm a nobody. He said, look, you've played on the Grand Ole Opry and you can fly airplanes. That's big news. You know? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. But I said, I'll do it. And I was honored to do it. And, and my theme of the thing was, I said, things are getting ready to change. When you walk out of here and graduate school, up to now, you've had people pat you on the back and say, just do the best you can do. That's all we'll ever ask of you. Yeah. Forget that. <laughs> the, the real world is not that accommodating. Right, it's not. And let me give you an example. If you're afraid of heights and you get a job over here at Powell Valley climbing poles and you can only get three foot off the ground and you freak out, the best you can do is not going to be good enough. <laughs> right. If you... If you pass out when you see blood, you can't be a medic. You're not going to be a paramedic. <laughs> you can't because the very best you can do is not going to be good enough. Right. And nobody's going to say that's okay. 
just well, you he check, lived. You check <laughs> me in the mail. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Just, just you know. I said. So the alternative is do what you can be best at. Yeah. And I said if if you know if being a plumber or or an electrician or whatever, I've moved around a lot, and when I go into a different town, moving and, and work. And you need something done, say, hey, I mean, you know, my pipes are leaking. Who's a good plumber? I said, you be the name that comes up more often than everybody else. Yeah. I guarantee you, you'll always have a roof over your head. You'll have money to, to buy and things you need and, and your kids and take care of them and well, that, all that. That logic really applies to, to, to the business I'm in. Uh, I, I'm, I'll, I will humbly say that we're a pretty popular option to come get these services done for your vehicle, whatever it may yeah. be. So, you know. People recommend us a lot. They'll say, go see Louie at AZ or, you know, the crew at AZ really knows what they're doing. And, uh, and and we get a lot of referral business like that because we work really hard to do good work. Well, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's what's important. Collectively, we're really proud of it, too. And, and one of the things that's delighted me most about doing this work, as much as a car guy as I am, you know, I grew up in my grandpa's used car business slash, you know, garage in, in town. Till I was I don't know, 13, 14, something like that. I was always around cars. And growing up and coming back to cars has felt really nice. And being uh, professionally involved with uh, an occasional very, very expensive high-end vehicle feels good. And, you know, I, I can drive 20 minutes across Knoxville and I could say five or six vehicles that I had my hands on in some form or fashion. So my work is out there. Well, yeah, and, and it's something to be and proud I, of. And I am proud of it. Uh, you know, as a, as a collective of individuals that work really hard in their trade, we put out good work, and it's nice to see it out and about, you know, doing what it's supposed to be doing, just like when I stopped and looked at that 911 earlier, or the, the 917. It was a Cayman, but uh, Cayman GT4. But, you know, it, it's nice to see what I do out and about in the world, and it feels right. good, and uh, I don't necessarily need the praise from the owner or random people that see and appreciate the car i just like knowing that it's out there doing its thing the way it's supposed to be doing and uh, whoever it may be appreciates it uh, well yeah it feels really good and, and, and i'm sure that industry that if you talk to somebody you all are uh, it's nothing so unique that well i'm gonna say it's not if you talk to somebody in California that's doing what you're doing, y'all talk the same language, and you yeah. say, "Well, it's you know we're going to do this fender, do this this way." They know what you're talking about, and people tell me sometimes in the music, say, "I don't see how you do it," you know. And, and my wife will say, "You go with these guys up in Virginia. There, I've got some guys I play with up around the north of Roanoke, up Stanton, Virginia, Sharksville, up in there. They can call. I'll go up there and do a show." And we should go up and do it. Yeah, they just got to tell and, you to show up. Yeah, because you know just, the language. We just go do it. And she said, I don't see, y'all don't play together. You don't practice and everything. I said, no, we don't have to. Because if they say, we're going to do uh, Bill and Rose song, uh, When the Golden Leaves Begin to Fall, we're going to do it the old way. Okay, we all know that that yeah. was the way that Jimmy Martin did it in, I think, 1957 with Bill. And we all know what that arrangement is. Yeah. And we don't have to rehearse it. We, because we all know. Yeah. And it's the same thing as theoretically a surgeon. They've got all these procedures down. So if if you're down there at UT and you're having your 
appendage removed or something, and the surgeon just happened to drop dead right in the middle of it. Somebody else. But this guy could step up there and say, oh, okay. And he knows exactly yeah. what's going on, and he's able to mm -hmm. pick up and, and finish the job. Well, a few things maybe he does different, but, but theoretically, everybody's on the same page. Yeah. And when what you're doing, and you all got real good at it, and I'm sure people come to you that are getting in the business and say, hey, you know, we're doing okay, but we're really having trouble with this. If y'all got any secrets or anything, you'd help us with this. That, that happens occasionally. And you probably say, well, you know, you'll come to work here. <laughs> <We'll> <laughs> right. teach you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of the case sometimes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not uncommon for those questions to just bounce around town, but, uh, you know, Knoxville's not too big to where it, Everybody knows everybody, but at the same time, we all kind of keep to our own and do our business. Exactly. Um, it's it's not big enough to where nobody knows everybody and we're all in the same industry. Like, no, we know everybody that does vinyl around town. We know everybody that yeah. details cars around town. Right. So it's it's uh, we we know the who's and the what's of what's going on around town. Yeah. Um, and uh, it 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 just is because that's you know. It's a, it all it gets it gets deep. Uh, I mean, and and not talking about. My music, the way the music I talk about in my my career and my my work, it was a it was chemistry and environmental things and biology and and minerals and metallurgy and all that kind of stuff, high tech stuff that I had to study a lot. I mean, yeah. I had to I had to learn, and I had customers that if they called and they had a, a problem. He was like, well, okay, you know, <laughs> and I knew, was, you know, but then I had other customers that really knew their stuff. If they called you and they had a problem that they couldn't solve, I knew I had to roll my sleeves up because yeah. it wasn't going to be easy. Right, because if they're asking you, they've probably done all that they can do. They, they've done all the common things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was more than going and finding out somebody forgot to open a valve or right. something like that. Right. And, but see... It's not that I was smart. What I had the advantage of over them was I was at 20 different places every week. And after doing that for 15 or 20 years, there was not a lot out there that I hadn't seen. Right, yeah. So if they call it, well, I've got this problem, I said, well, I that, think I know what it is. That but sounds sort right of similar to the thing I experienced up here in West Virginia that one time, blah, blah, blah. I think this is how that went. And this is how we fixed it. Yeah. Yeah. So that that experience is great to draw from no matter what industry you're in, because if you're around all of it all the time, there's not going to be a whole lot of scenarios that catch That's you right. on your heels. You know, to start with, you know, I, and of course I had, I was, I was smart enough that I had customers that were very smart and, and experienced people. When I was starting out, I didn't know anything. So if I had a problem at one customer, I'd go to my customer that knew everything. I'd say, hey, I've got trouble over here. What do you reckon it could yeah. be? And I'd pull off their brain, you know, and pick their brain to find out what to do. And then after, like say, 15, 20 years. You didn't have to do that anymore. I didn't really, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning when somebody called and their plant's about to shut down, <laughs> I had to get up and go respond. Right. But I didn't. I was not sweating bullets thinking, you know, was this something I can fix or, you know, because right. I, I knew probably from their, from their symptoms what it was going to turn out to be. And, right. And you've seen enough at that point. Sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong, but if I was wrong, then 
plan B usually works because I've seen about <laughs> everything happen right. at that point in time. Well, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have um, very – the two people that have more experience than me in the shop are, um, are my boss and my supervisor. And they're both extremely knowledgeable about what they do, and they don't have a whole lot of issues like clicking into that teacher mindset for a minute to help somebody with something. Now, I'm I'm three years into this profession almost. I know what I'm doing, but I don't know all of what is to be done. You know, uh, there's there's still things I walk into and learn every day. I I have this thing about. Uh, being a constant student that I say I, I want to be the dumbest man in the room today because the dumbest man in the room has the most to learn yep. and, and I don't uh, I don't that's not that's not a flippant like idea I have like I'm very serious about learning as much as I possibly can when I walk into a room either knowing literally or being metaphorically the dumbest man in the room yep. uh, I, I treat that serious and I, I fully intend to learn whatever's laid out in front of me that I haven't yet learned and that's done nothing but serve me well as a professional, as an artist for my own right. Um, I, I haven't found a scenario in my life so far that that hasn't done me some form of good. Well, sure. And you won't, and you know, when people come to you to show that confidence that, that you know, between all of us here, we've got people with a lot of experience, people with not a lot of experience, we're going to take care of this. Yeah. You know, and, and I always, people that work for me, when somebody'd have a problem, they would want to go out and and start running a whole big series of tests and and try to impress them with this when they're really the problem is something pretty simple, you right. know. I said, won't you just fix the problem? <laughs> I said, think about this, everybody is concerned about their health. If you're not feeling too good, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I guess you got it, man. We got people in here all morning with this. <laughs> you know, we, we got some, we'll get you a prescription here and clear us up in a couple of days. You feel better already. Because you know there's a solution. Because you know that it's nothing rare and odd. Yeah. You know, a doctor told me they teach you in medical school, if you hear hooves, think horses, don't think zebras. It's, <laughs> it's right. Start with the logical thing. Yeah. And, uh, so you feel better knowing that, that what you've got is not anything rare. It's pretty common, and there's a treatment for it. So you feel better already. But if you go in there, you just feel a little bad. He says, well, man, I'll tell you, I'm going to schedule you for a stress test and an MRI. Oh, dear God. What all and, could it be? Know, it could be this and that. And you think... Why did I open this can of worms? I've probably got better on my own. I'd regret even coming in here. So if your customer calls you with a problem, if it's simple, fix the problem, go on. That's all yeah. he wants. Yeah. He don't want he don't need you to impress him. He don't him. want to know the housing wise, he just wants the answer. That's right. Yeah. But uh I yeah, we, we have those uh those requests too. And it it really never ceases to amaze me what comes through our door metaphorically because we've we've been asked all kinds of crazy stuff we've done things for people all over town that you would never think of and i love it um you know uh, something to do as a day job professionally in an established industry it's a great thing for me to be doing as as the person and creative person that i am so i found a really good place to be in a, in a professional sense um personally art wise uh, I've poured a lot of creative energy into the podcast the last year or so, and I've put a lot of energy into finding quality guests and having quality conversations that I am excited to share with people. Um, I've 
curated a couple art shows of just my own art. I've cur I'm curating a show now that's going to be in August that I don't know if I've fully detailed out on the podcast or not, but it's going to be a showcase of people that make art that is in the same vein of art I make. And, uh, you know, Knoxville doesn't have uh, a, a, an art scene for the art that me and my friends make, and I'm tired of it. So I'm trying to put together a thing that showcases the people that make art and, uh, you know, the community of people that make art like this, uh, because so far it's not represented at all in the art context of Knoxville and all these people that I want to put on display are super talented and they're my age or similar to me and they've been making this kind of art because it's the art they feel called to make and there hasn't been a single established gallery or or formal entity around town that really gives these people and the art they make a solid venue and even if I have to do it once every three months in some random spot that I didn't do it at last time I don't care I'm going to do it because these people also deserve that 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 wall well, sure they do. that the, you know somewhere to display and you know not everybody likes psychedelic art or really vivid things but there's a community out there for it that support it that don't get exposed to it because it's not being shown anywhere and it's that vicious cycle about being exposed and getting exposure that you either have to just step into it and say i'm going to do this thing and i'm going to take all these people with me or it just doesn't happen so I, you know, I, I really try to share what I do with the people that I care about and at the same time expose it to the broader, you know, eyes of Knoxville more or less. And wherever it else it happens to be seen is great, but I'm just trying to do the Knoxville thing because that's where I'm at and that's where the people I want to surround myself with are and that's what they're making when they're making it. So. Well, it'll grow from there. And then, you, of course, you, you'll network and have people doing the same thing in other places. Right. And, and, and there are a lot of other towns that have really good art scenes like this. Uh, Denver is a great example. Austin's a great example. Uh, I haven't been to Texas, but I've been to Denver, and it's, it's a great place with a lot of art. And I really wish to see a lot more uh, open acceptance of all different kinds of stuff because there are several fine art galleries in Knoxville that have amazing work in them. And they'll have amazing work 365 days a year. But that's not to say there isn't a spot for a lot of other things to be displayed. Well, sure. But right now there just isn't. So I'm doing what I can to fix that. I was in the, one of the first sessions I did in Nashville with, I don't know who it was with, but, but one, of the, one of the Grand Ole Opry uh, stars there was was at the studio he doing some work on something he was a project of his and i was talking to him and and he knew all about fiddle players and i was playing fiddle in this session and i said who do you think's a better fiddle player fiddle player a or fiddle player b i won't mention the names and he said it's not about who's better it's about who's different yeah and i, I never forgot that you well know? i mean that that's a great answer because it, it, it's not about who's better to quantify it. It's, it's celebrating the differences because this person plays it one way and that person plays it that way. And it's both great. It's just, what are you looking for in the moment? Well, I've heard people, it, and, and I don't have a lot of respect for people that, that are whichever way the wind blows. And, it, and if you're talking about art, you mentioned psych psychedelic art. So if you got a guy that he's, he's this way and then next week psychedelic seems to be selling so now he's psychedelic yeah. and the next week he's he's just playing it's follow the leader dog, dog portraits coattail <laughs> dog portraits are where the money at these days <laughs> yeah and, uh, and you know i i've had a few people through the years tell me say you know i i got there at that 
festival where he's playing said we got out of the cars walking up there and he said I could hear it from way off and I said that's Rick on stage there <laughs> and I said you know that means more to me that you could identify me yeah than to, than you coming up there and listening to me play and say oh who that guy is he sounds just like Benny Martin or Kenny Baker or whoever uh, and that's intended as a compliment but that's not the one you want to get yeah I know yeah I know and uh, so I wanted to be whatever I was good or bad you know and uh, I know there, there was a fiddle player a famous uh, session player in Nashville named Johnny Gimble and Johnny Gimble said if you try to sound like me who's going to sound like you right <laughs> uh, and, and that's the, the celebrate the differences part because anybody can try and sound like somebody else but why would you yeah like that's the way I see it uh, now I don't play any musical instruments uh, I, I would like to one day I might learn but that's just not a thing I'm doing right now but I don't try to make art that looks like other people's art I just try to make the best, the best art that I can make and that's taking all kinds of different forms like I paint I draw with pens and pencils I use my 3d printer I make all kinds of stuff and sometimes I'm just making tools to accomplish other things sometimes I'm making something on that printer that comes out to be its own thing and I, I, I'd use the whole digital workflow to produce that one physical thing and that's that's it that's the thing well but let's 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 qualify that in, in wrapping up what we was talking about before about when I was saying if you play a song some people will play it different but there's a right and wrong it's black yeah. and white either you're playing right. it right or you're not now you can embellish on that or you can simplify that but the basic fundamental of the song's got to be there yeah. so if you say well i'm gonna paint a picture of a horse and you paint a picture of a horse but it looks like a dog anything but a horse or a cat. <laughs> it looks like a cat that don't give you the right to say, well, I just got my own way of doing things. <laughs> right. No, you tried to paint a horse. This is obviously that, a dog. That's just the way I interpret it. No, you know. Right. It, it's, it's like people say, well, you know, a lot, a lot of times they say the way I interpret things, you know, especially when they talk religious things. They say, well, people interpret things different. Okay. If you go outside and you come back in, you say, well, it's really hot outside. I say, well. I went out there a while ago. I didn't think it's that hot, really. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's our opinion of the temperature. Right. right. Now, if you go out and you say, you know, I just come back from town and look at the bank, it's 98 degrees today. Yeah. And I say, well, I was just down there a few minutes ago and it was 60. So then it's not an opinion anymore. Right. One of us is wrong. <laughs> One of us is or the, wrong. Or the machine malfunction. Right. But the, but there's there is a hard point of what this actually is. Yeah. So. Yeah. You you've got to you've got to be in the fundamentals. Then you can embellish and do whatever you need to do. Right. And, and art and music, all all creative things, are that way. So if you paint a picture of a, a barn, it needs to look like a barn. It can't look like a. Uh, a lighthouse, <laughs> right? It, and say that's just that's just that's you know, a, I'm just a little different. That's the fanciest <laughs> barn I've ever seen. Look at that light on top. Yeah. But uh, Rick, we've been here talking for two hours and twelve minutes now. No. Uh, yes, that's what the timer says. Now that's a little longer than I intended to, but uh, I thank you so very much, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I didn't do the thing at the top of the show, so I'm going to do it at the bottom. Uh, my name is Thomas Zachary. This is the newest episode of the KAAMP, that is the Knoxville Area Artist Networking Platform. 
and uh, I've been privileged enough to sit here and talk with the one Rick Campbell about his uh, creative life, playing music, and whatever else he cared to do. Um, Rick, thank you very much. If you would plug your socials one more time, I'll go ahead and free us up. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I appreciate you so much. I'm very honored. I, I, I've learned a lot through the years with with uh, music, and and I could be a lot better. I'm just a amateur musician that's been lucky and got to play with some very good musicians through the years by being in the right place at the right time. And I'm 62 years old and I'm learning as we go. And uh, I've got a lot more to learn, And but I'm enjoying it. I appreciate you having me. If you don't see any of my music, Rick Campbell Music on YouTube. And if you enjoy it, say okay i like it <laughs> that's, that's all that's all the reward i want out of it oh there we go rick thank you very much you're very well thanks for hosting me in your home in your garage to yes, record sir. this episode um it's nice to actually finally meet you for some reason i i don't think i have up until now no but uh i don't maybe you and my dad just got in we too. grew up together <laughs> yeah. yeah we grew up together but uh yeah thank you for taking the time and and i really really appreciate it this, yeah uh, there was there was nothing i want to do for you dad and nothing he wouldn't do for me we went through our whole childhood not doing anything for one another <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad to see that y'all are still lifelong friends it makes me very happy that both y'all have that yeah he's a good he's a good guy that's uh that's that's the opinion i keep about it yep. <laughs> All right. rick thank you very much